0: You're listening to Writers on a New England Stage with John Updike. This program originally aired in 2006. This archive audio is clipped at the beginning. We apologize. Merciless blind atoms which cause the cold weight of iron, the transparency of glass, the stillness of clay, the agitation of flesh. Electrons pour through copper threads and computer gates in the air itself when stirred to lightning by the interaction of water droplets. Only what we can measure and deduce from measurement is true. The rest is that passing dream we call ourselves. Ahmad is 18. This is early April. Again, green sneaks seed by seed into the drab city's earthy crevices. He looks down from his new height and thinks that to the insects unseen in the grass, he would be if they had a consciousness like his God. In the year past, he has grown three inches to six feet, more unseen materialist forces working their will upon him. He will not grow any taller, he thinks, in this life or the next, if there is a next an inner devil murmurs. What evidence beyond the prophet's blazing and divinely inspired words prove that there is a next? Where would it be hidden? Who would forever stoke hell's boilers? What infinite source of energy would maintain opulent Eden, feeding its dark-eyed swelling its heavy hanging fruits, renewing the streams and splashing fountains in which God, as described in the ninth surah of the Koran, takes eternal good pleasure. What of the second law of thermodynamics? The deaths, the deaths of insects and worms, their bodies so quickly absorbed by earth and weeds and road tar, devilishly strive to tell Ahmad That his own death will be just as small and final. Walking to school he has noticed a sign, a spiral traced on the pavement in luminous ichor, angelic slime from the body of some low creature, a worm or snail of which only this trace remains. Where was the creature going, its path spiraling inward to no purpose? if it was seeking to remove itself from the hot sidewalk that was roasting it to death as the burning sun beat down it failed and moved in fatal circles but no little worm body was left at the spirals center. So where did that body fly to? Perhaps it was snatched up by God and taken straight to heaven Ahmad's teacher, Sheikh Rashid the Imam, at the mosque upstairs at 2781 and a half West Main Street, tells him that according to the sacred traditions of the Hadith, such things happened. The messenger, riding the winged white horse Barak, was guided through the seven heavens by the angel Gabriel to a certain place where he prayed with Jesus, Moses and Abraham before returning to earth. To become the last of the prophets, the ultimate one. His adventures that day are proved by the hoofprint sharp and clear, that Barak left on the rock beneath the sacred dome, in the center of Al Quds, called Jerusalem by the infidels and Zionists, whose torments in the furnaces of Yohanan are well described in the seventh and eleventh and fiftieth of the surahs, of the book of books. That goes on some way. You get Ahmad's slant on the high school around him, his sense of of, uh, faith, struggling, fighting with doubt, the doubt that he feels uh, inhabits almost the entire environment there in northern New Jersey. Uh, And secondly, let me just read a few pages in which he uh, makes a fatal fatal response. Um, we followed him up to this page, which is 187 of the novel. We followed, we watched him graduate from high school, uh, flirt slightly with Joraline Grant, a black girl who sings in the Baptist choir. He even goes to the Baptist church uh, he is instructed in the mysteries of how to drive a smallish uh, truck, and his uh, companion on his journeys through northern New Jersey is uh, Charlie Chahab, who is the uh, son of the owner of Excellency Furnishings, uh, a family of Lebanese Americans founded this in the in the uh, large but uh, depressed city of new prospect, and here's a moment in their travels. One July day, on the way back to the store, Charlie directs him to swing into Jersey City. Through a warehouse region rich in chain-link fences and glittering coils of razor wire and the rusting rails of abandoned freight car spurs, they proceed past new, glass-skinned, tall apartment buildings being erected in place of old warehouses to a park on a point from which the Statue of Liberty and Lower Manhattan loom close. The two men, Ahmad in black jeans, Charlie in a loose olive drab coverall and yellow work boots, attract suspicious glances from older Christian tourists as they all stand out on a concrete viewing platform. Children who have been in the domed Liberty Science Center dart in and out and jump on the low iron fence that guards the drop to the river. A breeze and swarms of sparkle like dazzling gnats come in off the upper bay. The world famous statue, copper green across the water, presents a rather diminished side view at this angle, but lower Manhattan thrusts forward like a magnificently bristling snout. It's nice, Charlie observes, to see those towers gone. Ahmad is, Ahmad is too busy absorbing the sight to respond. Charlie clarifies they were ugly, way out of proportion. They didn't belong. Ahmad says, even from New Prospect, from the hill above the falls, You could see them. Half of New Jersey could see the damn things. A lot of the people killed in them lived in Jersey. I pitied them, especially those that jumped. How terrible to be so trapped by crushing heat that jumping to certain death is better. Think of the dizziness, looking down before you jump. Charlie says hurriedly, as if reciting, those people worked in finance, furthering the interests of the American empire, the empire that sustains Israel and inflicts death every day on Palestinians and Chechens, Chechnians, Afghans, and Iraqis. In war, pity has to be put on hold. Many were merely guards and waitresses serving the Empire in their way. Some were Muslims. Ahmad, you must think of it as a war. War isn't tidy. There is collateral damage. Those Hessians George Washington woke from their sleep and shot were no doubt good German boys sending their pay home to mother. An Empire sucks the blood of subject peoples so cleverly They don't know why they're dying, why they have no strength. The enemies around us, the children and fat people in shorts giving us their dirty little looks, have you noticed? Do not see themselves as oppressors and killers. They see themselves as innocent, absorbed in their private lives. Everyone is innocent. They are innocent. The people jumping from the towers were innocent. George W. Bush is innocent, a simple reformed drunk from Texas who loves his nice wife and naughty daughters. (laughs) Yet, Yet, out of this innocence, something evil, somehow evil, emerges. The Western powers steal our oil. They take our land. They take our God, Ahmad says eagerly interrupting his mentor. Charlie stares for a second, then agrees slowly as if this had not occurred to him. Yes, I guess so. They take from Muslims their traditions and a sense of themselves, the pride in themselves that all men are entitled to. This is not quite what Ahmad said and sounds a bit false. A bit forced and far removed from the concrete living God who stands beside Ahmad as close as the sunshine, of, uh, warming the skin of his neck. Charlie stands opposite him with knitted, thick eyebrows and his flexible mouth clenched in a sort of pained stubbornness. He has a soldier stiffness to him, a cancellation of the genial road companion habitually lodged in the side of Ahmad's vision. Seen frontally, Charlie, who neglected to shave this morning and whose eyebrows meet above the creased bridge of, the, of his nose, fails to harmonize for the expansive loveliness of the day, the sky cloudless but for a puffy far scattered over Long Island, the ozone at the zenith so intense it seems a smooth-walled pit of blue fire, the accumulated towers of lower Manhattan, a single gleaming mass, speedboats purring and sailboats tilting in the bay, the cries and conversation of the tourist crowd making a dapple, of harmless sound around them. This beauty, this beauty, Ahmad thinks, must mean something, a hint from Allah, a foreshadow of paradise. Charlie is asking him a question. Would you fight them, then? Ahmad has missed what them refers to, but says yes, as if answering a roll call. Charlie appears to repeat himself. Would you fight with your life? Uh, How do you mean? Charlie is insistent. His brows bear down. Would you give your life? The son leans on Ahmad's neck. Of course, he says, trying to lighten the exchange with a flicking gesture of his right hand, if God wills it. The slightly false and menacing Charlie collapses and is replaced by the good-natured Motormouth, the ersatz older brother, who grins to put the exchange behind them, tucking it away. Just what I thought, he says. Madman, you're a good, brave kid. Thank you.
1: This is the exchange on New Hampshire Public Radio. I'm Laura Connoy, and we're listening to Monday Night's Writers on a New England Stage event with author John Updike. After Mr. Updike read from his new novel Terrorist, I joined him for an on-stage interview with questions from the audience as well. Welcome back everyone. It's great to be back here with you on Writers on a New England Stage. And it's wonderful to meet John Updike who's, I know he hears this all the time, I read Rabbit When, but um, I remember reading them way, way back and it's wonderful to be sharing the stage with him tonight and wonderful to be back here at the Music Hall in Portsmouth. We've already gotten some terrific questions from our audience, but I do want to encourage you that uh, you can still fill out one of these white question cards and just pass it to the usher and we'll try to get to as many as your, uh, of your questions as possible. Well, John Updike, so many questions for you. I'm not sure where even to start, so, so I think many. I'll start with the latest book. How did you get inside Ahmad's head? Uh, he's 18, you're 74. He's Muslim, you're not. He lives in a teenage world very different from the teenage world you grew up in. You live in a nice little village in in Massachusetts. He lives in this pretty terrible town, New Prospect. How did you manage to portray someone so utterly different from yourself?
0: Well, Laura, you're assuming I did a good job of it, and maybe I did a bad job of it. But I thought, having been once 18 and having attended a high school, uh, true, uh, a long time ago, but having been a high school student and uh, being in my own uh, more modest and less extreme way, uh, religious I thought I could uh, animate the mind of a young uh, uh, extreme uh, Muslim uh, and I, you know I did some research. I read the Koran uh, again, I read it before and uh, I read the newspapers and uh, I'm morbidly interested in fact in the phenomenon of suicide bombers. So, so many of them so young and a number of them female now. Uh, why do they do it, Uh, how are they handled, all that. Uh, So uh, any novel is a bit of a leap into the dark. Uh, You mentioned Rabbit but when so long ago in 1959 I sat down to write about an ex-basketball player who runs away from his wife and small son I was none of those things. I had not been a basketball star, I was not 6'3, I was not Swedish in origin and I didn't live In Brewer, PA. Uh, Brewer is a little like New Prospect, in fact. I seem to be interested in that kind of depressed eastern rust belt city with an empty downtown and uh, nevertheless people continuing to try to live there. So this type of city has been on my mind for some while. It's true I don't live in one, but whenever I visit one, whether it's Lawrence, Mass., or Lynn, or Reading, PA. I'm interested. I'm interested in it because these are stately cities, many of them with a proud industrial past, and now they have these boarded up downtowns and uh, a lot of immigrants uh, who don't know the language very well and aren't getting along with the law terrifically well. Anyway, I'm interested, and I think a novelist is entitled to follow his interests however far afield from his own life uh, they take him.
1: Did you have any helpers? You know, any 18-year-old Muslims who you met or talked to or, you know, gave you some personal insight into what it's like to be Ahmad?
0: You know, if I met an 18-year-old fanatic Muslim, I really don't think I'd be able to use him. Uh, And he might might disrupt my own vision of an 18-year-old fanatic Muslim. So in a way, you don't want to know too much. A novel is fiction is the product of ignorance as much as of knowing. Uh, I did, however, recognize that there would be people reading the book who did know Arabic and so I uh, made some effort to uh, get the Quranic quotes uh, correct. Uh, By that I mean I didn't want to inflict the Arabic script upon the reader of this book. I thought that was too much, too opaque. But the sound of the Arabic in um, the Roman alphabet. I thought it would be sufficiently mysterious and even ominous and musical, and it gives you some feeling for what the language might sound like. This magical language, because Arabs, Arabs live for their language, much as Russians used to. Uh, they love uh, their own language. So I got the, uh, I enlisted, found through Harvard. I found a young graduate student from Lebanon. Who knew the Quran very well and who tried to keep me on the the straight path of Quranic correctness? Uh, but no, I'd, I'd I'd be I'd be scared to meet an eighteen year old Arabic like my hero for fear that uh, the externals of him, the fact of him, would in some way prevent me from creating my own.
1: Did you have moments where you thought, uh, "I'm not getting this Quran thing right. I'm not getting." the Arabic right. I'm, I'm not portraying how Ahmad feels about his religion right, uh, it, because it's very personal the way that you describe how he feels about his faith and his God. Do you ever but, worry about, you know, insulting someone or having even a Mohammed cartoon moment where people say, you know, how dare you portray us like this? You got it all wrong.
0: I love that phrase, the Mohammed cartoon moment. Um, I've been dreading that, dreading the moment when... <laughs> an indignant uh, Muslim would rise up out of the the audience um, armed with a pistol and this this uh, theater is so dark there might well be several of of them out there Um, but uh, no I don't I'm not enough of a worrier possibly Uh, I've written a great deal about uh, being a boy in Pennsylvania and a certain amount about being a suburbanite in New England And uh, I'm of an age when uh, if I'm not going to take risks, uh, when can I? So uh, I just went ahead, and you go ahead as long as it feels kind of solid under you. I began it in the first person and decided that this would diminish the novel just to keep it inside Ahmad's own young head, his young and, in a way, ignorant head. So I put it in the third person, and that enabled me to go into the other characters around him because, in a way, it's a story not just about a ter- terrorist uh, of the Islamic persuasion, but it's about America now as a kind of faithless, a faithless uh, wasteland, um, with a running a low fever of despair. Uh, that was my image. Uh, the original title had been "Land of Fear," and uh, it began actually in a fictional but the fictional secretary of uh, Homeland Security. uh, That element remains in the novel, but a very minor uh, note because I'm really trying to write about America post 9-11.
1: Well, and picking up on that, uh, much has been written about how this book is a departure from your usual genre, your usual subject matter. How much was it a departure for you, Mr. Updike, and how much are familiar themes present in this book, you know, that readers would recognize from other Updike books? And you just touched on that, but I I want you to give us a little more, please.
0: I think writing is a lot like handwriting, is that no matter how hard you try to make it different, it tends to come out much the same. And you can't feel a handwriting expert about your penmanship, and so there are certain and elements that I can't control uh, in this book. Uh, I was great, greatly relieved uh, w- when I could cook up a, um, an affair between Ahmad's guidance teacher and his mother. Um, <laughs> this seemed to put me in comfortable t- territory <laughs> where I didn't, didn't have to consult the Quran. And, <laughs> And uh, people who uh, know my work—the uh, blessed few uh, who do—know uh, that I've written other novels that take place in fantastic uh, locales. Uh, the coup is about a dictator in Africa, an African nation invented called Kush. And there's also a book about Brazil, which tries to tell the Tristan and Isolde story again from the through Brazilian characters, so I have, uh, you know, tried to stretch myself and even, you know, for for a writer it's sort of an adventure, it's a trip. You're proposing a place you've never been and you try to go there, and that was sort of this book, i tried to go there.
1: More of my on-stage interview with John Updike coming up after a short break. Writers on a New England Stage is a collaboration between New Hampshire Public Radio, the Music Hall in Portsmouth, and River Run Books. For more information on Writers on a New England Stage, including past broadcasts, visit our website at nhpr.org. I'm Laura Kanoy. This is The Exchange on New Hampshire Public Radio. is a presence in your other works. It's a huge presence in this novel, obviously. How would you describe your own religious faith, and how does that belief system show up in your writing, including in this latest novel?
0: Uh, That's not a small question. Um, (laughs) I was brought up as a Lutheran in Pennsylvania, Lutheran. I married a Unitarian minister's daughter, and we compromised upon the Congregational Church in New England, which sat, as they tend to do, in the middle of the green in the center of the town, and uh, uh, got something out of both denominations, but my later life course has taken me into the Episcopalian uh, church where, or the Episcopal church, my wife tells me. I must stop using the word Episcopalian so frequently. So I've never really, uh, even in college when people tend to uh, go elsewhere than the available churches. I've never really set myself adrift from my church upbringing. Uh, My father was a minister's son from New Jersey, Presbyterian, and uh, was taught Sunday School and sort of represented a uh, heroic, to my eyes, attempt to be a good man. And An early novel of mine called The Centaur tries to describe my father in his rather comical struggle to be good but its example has never left me and uh, to imagine myself uh, without any belief system as you call it uh, I feel I would be depressed and lack courage. Being a Christian even a watery kind of Christian has I think given me the courage of my creativity and enabled me to take risks that otherwise I might not have. I took a risk when I left New York City where I had a comfortable job and came up to New England where I had no job except that of a freelance writer and it's enabled me to write now and then on the edge of what was acceptable and uh, respectable. So uh, that's about all I can think of. It was enough religion in my own background and in my own life to transpose myself into a very religious young man. My young man's father vanished when he was three. His mother is a lapsed Catholic who thinks it's all kind of unnecessary uh, and is herself a bit of a new age bohemian. So uh, growing up without any religious basis in his life. He, at the age of 11, begins to go to uh, the mosque in this city. Many of the New Jersey cities, as you may know, have sizable uh, Islamic populations. Anyway, he's a self-converted Muslim and becomes a tool of unseen forces in the Islamic community.
1: And in doing the research for the book, not only did you research the Quran and Ahmad's faith, but Also just about our own country's homeland security apparatus, if I could call it that. Um, You also had to look into different scenarios of what possibly could happen, the what-if scenarios that people are always running through their minds. How did that process, Mr. Updike, of writing and researching about terrorism affect your own sense of security? (laughs) Did it make you more paranoid? I think that's what I'm trying to say.
0: (laughs) Uh, It made me a little more insecure, although sometimes one of the advantages, one of the unsung charms of being a fiction writer is that you get rid of your fears and anxieties by objectifying them. I remember in my mid-50s I had a, I thought, an ominous set of chest pains and both of my parents eventually died of heart attacks. Uh, so I was anxious for myself, and I uh, occupied myself by killing off a character of heart disease <laughs> in one of my novels, uh, a novel called R- Rabbit at Rest actually, and the worse he felt the better I felt. <laughs> and. Uh, <laughs> I don't think being a resident of a small New England town I'm exposed to the full brunt of the nervousness, the new nervousness uh, since 9-11. I think to be a New York resident and go into those subways every day uh, not knowing but what there might be some poison gas or a big explosion, uh, that I think has changed the quality of life for New, new Yorkers and I suppose many big city dwellers, Chicago and Chicago is frequently mentioned as the possible site of the next serious uh, catastrophe. Uh, so, yeah, I'm I'm sort of in a good place. But yes, I r- grieve. I grieve over the headlines from Iraq. I grieve that the world hates us, as we're assured every day in the press. I grieve that the Arab world, which used to be, if anything, pro-American, is now distinctly not. Uh, the constant leakage of lives in Iraq and Afghanistan and elsewhere is painful. Uh, to me, and you wish it would stop. On the other hand, I'm glad I'm not trying to run the world. So yeah, it, it, it was like getting rid of a burden. I was, am worried about terrorism. Uh, I see the possibility. I am aware that the quality of American life changed about five years ago. And as an American novelist, I'm just trying to um, cope with the change in the air.
1: Were you trying to send your readers a message about their own coping?
0: I think I believed that I was, that my mission in this novel was to give a sympathetic portrait from within of a young terrorist. A young man who is enlisted in terrorism. Who is in other respects a good boy, a good student, non-violent, anxious just to do the right thing as defined by his own religion so I think that in the fiction that has been written and more to come lots more to come the terrorist figures as the other the deadly other the new monster to replace the Japs and the Huns of World War two and the the commies of the Cold War now it's the Arabs and uh, so rather than write that way about I tried to get inside what it feels like this from the other side is construed as a war and many things are okay in a war that are not okay otherwise Uh, and once you can imagine this benign country of ours as the great Satan as the embodiment of of everything corrupt sensual and godless about the modern world, then you can sort of begin to see that, yes, even the insurgent tactics in Iraq, atrocious as they are, can be construed by the people that perpetrate them as in some way good and godly actions. So I guess that was my purpose here, was to try to illuminate the terrorist phenomenon from inside uh, with a kind of um, loving touch. Well,
1: and we have a couple questions actually from the audience on that vein, and I want to ask them to you now. Uh, Here's one that's a perfect follow-up. Have you had much backlash for portraying a somewhat positive person as a terrorist? This person who asked the question
0: says, people do so love black and white. Mm. Black and white is the way we need to frame things uh, to act. And I remember as a young, as a child, really World War II, the exhilarating sensation of being all white and the other side being all black and it was more or less the case really certainly in the case of Nazi Germany uh, that there was no disputing that that we were on the the right side Uh, what friction I've been aware of has come not from people who think it's wrong to try to show terrorists or extremists from within but from um, Arab Americans who feel that I've caricatured or failed to understand the beauties and the coherence of Islam. So on talk shows, and I've been promoting this book and been on quite a few talk shows, I occasionally get these pained but generally polite calls from Arab Americans who feel I don't really get it and therefore should let the topic alone.
1: And what do you say to them?
0: (laughs) Well, it's too late. (laughs) Um, uh, anyway, I think a fiction writer has a duty to be as daring as he can be and uh, you must fight for your right to try to animate without first-hand experience to animate on the basis of having you know, lived for 74 years and having absorbed a lot of unconscious impressions. I think I'm entitled as the next person to try to write about these matters. I've written from the standpoint of women in more than one novel. I've written about Buddhist or Hindu, I guess it properly is, a Hindu ashram. Uh, In my interest in religion, I've gone astray from my own roots many times. Uh, I think that's your job, if you're going to be an imaginative uh, writer. Here's
1: a question that I like. What parallels do you see between Rabbit and your new character?
0: There are some, as I said. Indeed, when I think about jumping into this novel, uh, it was not so unlike jumping into Rabbit Run. At the point I wrote that, I didn't know that I was, could be a novelist. It still seemed, I was still young enough to think that this is a frightful amount of sitting that is demanded by writing a 300, <laughs> a 300 page work. In fact, Rabbit Run and The Centaur were meant to be novellas, matching novellas bound into one set of covers but in fact rabbit run when i got into it and discovered the present tense a great aid to fast riding somehow and to being with rabbit in his present tense in his perpetual present tense not much reflection not much looking backward and not much looking ahead just a thing happens he happens he runs right in front of us it. it's like a movie was my notion of it so uh, uh, that went more fluently than i would have expected but Yes, there are similarities. They're both young, full of fermenting juices, and both persuaded that, as Rabbit says, there's something out there that wants me to find it. And so all of his running and running away uh, is justified by this sensation that there's something beyond social goodness or being responsible. There's something uh, in him that wants to find or wants to be found. So in that way they're alike. And they both come out of similar environments, uh, gritty cities, without a lot of promise, a lot, without an awful lot of opportunity uh, for young men. Both need better jobs. The guidance counselor knows that about Ahmad, that he's been led into being a mere tool of the revolution when in fact he should be using his brain and his wish to do good in profession. So those similarities uh, come to mind. When when Rabbit Run came out people deplored this frightful, frightful character who runs away from his wife, never makes up his mind about anything and just does damage when I didn't see him as awful uh, at all. I saw him as typically uh, human or at least typically male.
1: (laughs) I think I'll leave that alone and move on to the next question. (laughs) I have a lot of questions, uh, Mr. Updike, and we have a lot from the audience, too, just about you as a writer. uh, I was interested to learn that you started out uh, in thinking you might be a cartoonist. You had a stint editing the Harvard Lampoon. I wonder how much of that cartoonist is still in you, shaping your writing, shaping the way you see the world?
0: I think it helped me to create images and to compose the images into a kind of composition. Uh, In general, I try, with a short story or a novel, to know at least uh, the general curve of the action and to have some sense of where it's going to wind up, Uh, and that maybe is a kind of cartooning uh, thing to do. I loved cartoons, I loved the idea of these black and white creatures, little people uh, being printed in newspapers, not just in my town but all across the country. The sense of multiplying yourself in this way seemed to me very intrinsic to creativity in general. Uh, It's something the modern press and modern technology can, can do for us. So it took the form initially of drawing, I copied other people's and I continued to draw pretty much up through college uh, when I was, as you say, uh, on the Harvard Lampoon and got on really as a cartoonist. But at some point in my college life it seemed to me that I had had a better chance of cartooning with words than being a simple cartoonist. Uh, A cartoonist of the kind that appears in the New Yorker needs about 20 ideas uh, a week of which one is chosen, whereas a novelist the only really needs uh, an idea every two years. <laughs> um, but I, but, but I do use the cartooning. I though I rarely draw now because my drawing hasn't basically matured. Ever since I was twenty-two, I drew as well as I, I do now, as well, better actually. Uh, but it, it gave me a sense of specific ambition as opposed to general ambition, rather than wishing to be a great writer like Tolstoy, I merely wish to get into the New Yorker magazine. Uh, I had a specific goal, uh, and I think often you hit a target you're aiming at much more usually than you hit something you're not aiming at. You
1: know, speaking of maturing, um, how would you say you have evolved as a writer? For example, if you, you know, decide to sit down tomorrow and crack open some of your early stuff, what would you think? Would you think, mm, I like this or this is kid stuff or what?
0: <laughs> some of it is, um, I can see gaucheries in it and also I'm struck by how little uh, the young writer I- knew. I began to publish when I was 22 and uh, have been publishing more or less steadily ever since. And when you're 22 uh, you know some things. You certainly know about pop music of the time and what teenage slang, if any, is. Uh, But there's a great deal of innocence, sort of embarrassing innocence in some of the early short stories. I speak about them because I recently within the last couple of years uh, collected my early stories, that is, the stories uh, that I wrote when I was married to my first wife, a 22 or 23 year period, beginning when I was 22, um, and changed a few of them. I was tempted to, to try to erase the gaucherie a bit, but by and large, a lot of them I are let go into print again without so much as touching them. Uh, you you find things you wouldn't, mistakes you wouldn't make now, but also you find you're doing things and knowing things you don't know how to do now. So it's kind of a uh, either or, uh, uh, brilliant. Plus, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, well, I wouldn't say, I don't know, what do you think is brilliant? The lights are certainly uh, bright enough. Um, <laughs> um, <clears throat> Uh, I, I'm not very soft critical really, not the way some writers are who loathe, they say, their their early stuff. Uh, no, I kind of like it above a certain threshold. Uh, I like it all and, and uh, respect it as as a record of the young man I once was.
1: How much do you, at this point in your career, think about what the reading public wants, what the critics are going to say, versus just what you, John Updike, wants to do?
0: i uh, You begin, in a way, by being uh, more willful than you become. <laughs> uh, uh, when I was a young writer, especially the novels, I was writing for my own pleasure or edification or my own stretch to see if I could do it uh, and had a certain design and didn't uh, in theory at least, didn't much care how many copies were bought or how, or what critics thought of them. I think you need this because if you're going to take chances, you have to face the possibility uh, that it's an ill-gaged chance and uh, neither the critics nor the public is going to, to love you much. Uh, the, the older you get, I guess, the, the more you'd like to be loved if you knew how to go about it. Um, but you'd become by then such a crusty aged writer that I think you're kind of hard to teach uh, teach uh, new tricks to I um, I don't in a way you learn but writing is is an art and you um, you almost know as much at the age of 24 as you do at the age of 74 Uh, And furthermore, you're fuller of your mission. Uh, You're full of material you've absorbed in the first 20 years of your life. Only you have seen these things. Only you have this particular slant on life in Pennsylvania. Domestic life in Pennsylvania was my great topic. Um, And uh, you are the news. You are the newest wave. And so you have this you have a lot to say, or so you think, and the older you get, the less, the less possibly you do have to say. Very unusual for an American writer to still be producing work of any merit as old as I am. Even Henry James, who's generally cited as the most enduring long runner, the marathon American writer, uh, basically stopped writing novels when he was about 60. Um, Hemingway and Fitzgerald were washed up by the time they were 40. Uh, Fitzgerald especially uh, he needed to be young and he needed to to describe young dilemmas, young frustration Uh, so to have a prolonged career as an American in a way goes against our native grain which is to treat writing as a uh, a kind of ecstasy, uh, a kind of fit of inspiration uh, that comes upon you like athletic prowess uh, when you're young and once you lose the limber the limber muscles uh, you're through as a as a writer.
1: Well this relates beautifully into another question. What writing project interests you that you haven't tackled yet?
0: Well I've never really written for the stage and uh, Maybe it's too late and I'm paying the price for never having been a great playgoer. So I don't really know what's hip or what's new or what remains to be done. But there is that hole in my resume. Um, The one uh, novel project, I had this idea of writing a, a Pennsylvania tetralogy Uh, which would be future, present, that would be rabbit run, Uh, remembered past, that would be the centaur, and then historic past, and I chose as my hero James Buchanan, who was the only president from Pennsylvania, and an interesting figure in many ways, and uh, a good novel hero in a way, because he was burned early in life, played it safe for decade after decade. He was called a good, safe man. Uh, and then he got burned at the end by the Civil War, which uh, happened under his regime. So there's, a, there's an outline there, but I couldn't embody it. I couldn't do it and I tried twice now and maybe that still hangs over me, uh, but I think maybe I gave Buchanan my best shot. There are some writers who find the historical novel con- congenial, who don't mind the digging up old facts, looking at old prints, old photographs and constructing a kind of world out of it. Some writers are terribly good at it. I'm always troubled by having not authenticated what I'm writing by being there. I seem to need memory of actual textures, actual faces, actual expressions before I can begin to write. So that's a that's a a lack. Henry James, by the way, had very little good to say about the historical novel because he thought too that a writer's mission and writer's purpose was to describe his own times where he was uh, an authentic uh, witness.
1: And one last question for you, Mr. Updike. um, uh, The last time we did Writers on a New England stage, Dan Brown told us about his anti-gravity boots that he hung, would put on and would hang from the ceiling to kind of get a new perspective on a plot twist or... Get a new idea or bring some blood to his brain. Uh, this person wants to know: Do you have any rituals or charms to aid you in your creative process, yeah, such Hem- as
0: anti-gravity boots? <laughs> that sounds like a very strenuous uh, aid to aid <laughs> to thought. Um, Hemingway used to sharpen pencils. I remember that much. And he always began the day. He rose. He was an early riser, Hemingway, and he'd rise in the dawn there in Cuba or Florida. Uh, and sharpen the pencil to get himself started. Uh, I generally uh, write a few letters, I answer a few letters. I have a variety of writing implements, ranging from a word processor to pencil and paper, uh, with a typewriter, an old manual typewriter in between. And uh, I don't have any ritual-like anti-gravity boots, although I find that sometimes you do We must trust writers, I guess we all must trust the subconscious to a degree. Uh, You're mulling over problems even when you don't think you're doing it and at idle moments like driving a car or walking along or trying to hit a golf ball, maybe you start to solve an artistic problem that you couldn't solve just sitting there at your desk. It's a little like going to sleep, that is the harder we deliberately try to do it, the harder it becomes. Uh, it's uh, so that writing uh, you try to relax, you try to relax and just put down one set of words in the faith that more words will grow from that. And I found that in general uh, to be usually true of a morning that that first couple sentences breed others. You get into it, your feet lift off the ground, and you're writing for a couple hours and imagining, and you're there, and then you come down slowly and have the rest of the day to do useful things in.
1: (sighs) Well, Mr. Updike, thank you for joining us, and I want to let everyone here know that the next Writers on a New England stage will feature Mitch Albom. He's author of Tuesdays with Maury. He'll be our next author on Writers on a New England stage discussing his new book, One More Day. That will be on September 29th. And once again, a very special thanks to our guest tonight, John Updike. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thank you.